we open God's Word, our scripture reading this morning is uh, Psalm 30. Happens to be the next psalm as we've been uh, making our way through the next few psalms in book one of the Psalter. The um, superscription of Psalm 30 tells us that this psalm of David was written um, for the dedication of the temple. And in this psalm, David writes, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored to me life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I sat in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I pled for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. As I said, this is the the next psalm as we make our way through the next part of book one of the Psalter, but it's also a psalm where in verse four and verse 12, David summons us to give thanks to God's holy name. So in God's providence, a fitting psalm to consider on Thanksgiving where the purpose of a day of Thanksgiving, the purpose of a a service of worship on this day is to do precisely what Psalm 30 calls us to to give thanks to God's holy name. And so as we celebrate today, we consider this psalm and and how it calls us to give thanks to God, not just for the material blessings that we enjoy, or the health, or family, but ultimately for the hope of the gospel. That's what Psalm 30 directs us to give thanks to God for. We um, give thanks to his holy name. First of all, because of his king. Did you notice how in verse 4 of this psalm, uh, David directs the, the people of God, the, the saints or, or holy ones, to, to sing praise to God and give thanks to his holy name for what he's done in verses 1 to 3. That, that call to give thanks to God's holy name flows out of what he's just said in those first three verses where David speaks of of his very personal deliverance 
where God drew him up and did not let his foes rejoice over him, but rather healed him and brought his life up from Sheol or the grave. It says that he restored to him life from among those who go down to the pit. And so David in those opening verses is speaking of of some kind of near-death experience from which God saved him. It is a, a personal prayer of thanksgiving, but because he's the king, in his salvation is the people's salvation. And so he says to them, sing praise to the Lord, O you his saints, give thanks to his holy name. Thank the Lord for what he's done for me. And as he, he addresses them, that word um, for, for saints with which he addresses them is, is literally something like um, covenant ones. It's the plural form of, of those who are recipients of God's covenant love. Um, you know that a word that comes up so often in the Psalms, Cliff referred to it a moment ago, it's often translated as something like steadfast love, but the, the Hebrew word is, is hesed. It's God's um, loving kindness, his covenant faithfulness or, or covenant love. And, and David will sometimes refer to himself as God's hasid, his covenant one, the, the, the recipient of God's hesed, covenant love. But here what he does is he, he expands that into the plural, the hasidim, the, the covenant ones. See, he addresses the people of God in verse 4. He, he refers to them as the, the covenant ones, the, the recipients of God's hesed love, those who are God's covenant people under the king with whom he's covenanted. As he speaks to them, he's now calling them to give thanks and praise to God for saving their king. For as we've seen often in the Psalms, as it goes with the king, so it goes with the king's people. He is their representative. And, and so if he is in the pit, then things don't bode well for them. But in Save the King, God saves the king's people. That's what we see in verse 4. He, he's calling them to give thanks and praise to God for saving their king because in saving him, he saves them. Just a couple other places where we see this in, in the Psalms, in, in Psalm 3, at the very um, entryway into the Psalter, where uh, David's enemies are many and they're seeking to destroy him. And David is yet confident that God will strike his enemies on the cheek and break their teeth, that he will defeat his enemies and in so doing save him. But immediately after saying that, he then says in verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord, his blessing be on his people. For in saving the king, as David prays in that psalm, God saves the king's people. We're right in the immediate uh, vicinity of, of this psalm. David, in Psalm 28, we looked at it uh, about a week ago. David um, cries out in that psalm for God to save him. He says to you, O Lord, I, I call my rock. Don't be deaf to me. Don't leave me down here in the pit. Don't be silent to me. And then he he looks forward in verses 6 and 7 to how God will answer that prayer and says, Blessed be the Lord for hearing the voice of my pleas for mercy, which leads him at the the conclusion of the psalm in verses 8 and 9 to say the Lord is the strength of his people, the uh, saving refuge of his anointed. 
Again, in saving his anointed, God saves them. Because it goes with the king, so it goes with the king's people. The rest of our psalm then, Psalm 30, is, is occupied with this praise and thanksgiving for how God has saved David. Toward whom his apparent anger lasted for a moment, but his favor for a lifetime, whose weeping God let last for the night, but brought joy in the morning. That's what David sings of in in verse 5. Then in verses 6 through 12, he again restates how God saved him. I think we're we're to understand uh, verses 6 through 12 as sort of a a restatement of of the very thing that he just said in verses 1 through 5. He says, I, I, I said to myself in my prosperity that I, I shall never be moved. Because of God's favor, my mountain stood strong. But then, God hid his face. David says that he was dismayed. And some commentators um, take this to mean that, that David sinfully believed he was self-sufficient and in his arrogance said, I will never be moved. And, and so God humbled him. But if you notice, he he says that it was by God's favor that his mountain stood strong. He doesn't say that it was by his own strength. And so it doesn't seem that David is sinfully trusting in his own prosperity, but but I think he's saying, Lord, I was so sure of your favor because of the covenant promises that you'd made to me and how you'd anointed me to be king and, and were leading me to prosper, that I didn't think I'd have to pass through the valley before you'd exalt me to this high place. And so when you hid your face, I was dismayed. I think that hiding of God's face is a description of, of the very suffering that David has been ex- um, experiencing and describing in the last several psalms. Or in Psalm 25, he spoke of the wantonly treacherous who sought to do him harm and laid traps for him and and hated him with violent hatred. They lied about him in Psalm 26, bringing false accusations against him such that in Psalm 27, he is virtually exiled from God's presence and, and longs to be able to come back into God's holy place. And so in Psalms 28 and 29, he cries out for God not only to save him, but also to bring justice. I think he's saying here in verse 6, I I didn't expect to have to go through all that before being lifted up from the pit. When you told me I'd be king, as I trusted in your word, I thought that things would go from good to better. I didn't realize that the cross would come before the crown, that this unexpected suffering would come my way where it felt like you'd hidden your face. Remember, that's how he described it back in Psalm 27. He's he's exiled from God's holy place. He's exiled from the land and says, Lord, hide not your face from me. Don't forsake me, but let me draw near into your presence. As he was far from God's sanctuary, on the run, his life in danger, it felt like God had hidden his face from him. And so David was dismayed. We can think of a psalm like Psalm 22 where he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't see this coming. And even in that, we, we learn that we too should not think that just because God has made good and precious promises that, that we won't first have to pass through the valley. And David reminds us here that the cross precedes the crown and, and that suffering before glory is the normal pattern to be expected 
for the believer. But then he also teaches us when that suffering comes, what to do. As in verse 8, he says, To you, O Lord, I, I make my, my supplication. The, the ESV says, I, I plead for mercy, but this, this word simply means favor or, or pity. He, he's simply asking God to save him, to show him favor, because it would not profit God for his king to go down to the pit. But he reasons with God that God will be most glorified in raising him up because the dust cannot praise him or tell of God's faithfulness. Notice how the object of David's petition is the glory of God and the hallowing of his name. And so he says, hear, O Lord, and be merciful. Show your favor and be my helper. Raise me up from the pit, from this death-like ordeal that I might praise you in the midst of your people. Those saints of verse 4, he longs to be able to praise God in the midst of them, which he does in verse 11, where he says, you have turned my mourning into dancing, and you have loosed my sackcloth to clothe me with gladness. In essence, you have removed my funeral garments, and you have dressed me for a wedding, that I might sing your praise and not be silent, but give thanks to you forever. Um, David recognizes that God's deliverance of him is unto thanksgiving. He reminds us that if our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, then when he lifts us up from the pit, when he hears and answers our prayer, when he he heals us, to use the language of verse 2, it is our joyful duty then to give thanks. Um, The thanks that he mentions in Verse 12, the thanks that he calls for, even commands in verse 4, and the thanks that is implied in verse 1, where he extols the Lord for lifting him up. And so as you consider God's mercies in your life in this past year, the example of David in Psalm 30 teaches you to give thanks. The reason why God cares for us, the reason why he gives us our daily bread and forgives our debts is that we might hallow his name as David here does, extolling God and giving him thanks. David teaches us here in Psalm 30 how to respond to God's mercy. And yet David is not only our example in this psalm, but David, as the New Testament tells us, speaks in the Psalms as a prophet. We've seen in the book of Hebrews that it it tells us David speaks for Christ. He is a type of the one who would come from his line. And so as we, we think about David in Psalm 30 being lifted up from the pit to then summon all of God's people to praise for how in saving the king, he saved them. Consider that pattern points us to David's son. In fact, this is often the case in the Psalms where David will describe his own experience in terms that go well beyond him because his experience is meant to point to someone else. Again, think of Psalm 22. Though David there suffers, he he describes his suffering in that Psalm in terms that we know don't actually apply to him, where he speaks of having his hands and and his feet pierced, of being stripped so that that people cast lots for his clothing, and then literally being laid down in the dust of death. And we know that didn't actually happen to David. 
And yet he describes his experience in, in a sort of poetic hyperbole that is literally true of the one to whom he points. Think of how we, we see this in Psalm 30. The, the actual language that David uses is that his life is brought up from Sheol, from the grave. And then God restores him. That, that word that's translated restore is a word that's elsewhere used in the Old Testament for raising someone from death. And so David is saying, I was among those who had gone down to the pit. And that the pit there parallels Sheol in verse 3. But God brought me back to life. Now, obviously, we understand that's not literally true of David. He, he's describing what it felt like for God to save him. But he does so in terms that are literally true of his son, who was buried in the grave that God might lift him from it, who descended to the dead that God might raise him to life and his people might praise him for how in saving the king, he saved them. David is speaking of a death and resurrection-like ordeal. The same way that he does in, in Psalm 16. Which Peter tells us in Acts 2 is a prophecy of Christ, where David says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see decay. And Peter says, that's not literally true of David. We, we can see his grave right over there. But he was speaking of his son. What happens to David happens to him for the sake of the one who is in him. And he, he speaks of it in prophetic hyperbole that goes beyond him to be literally fulfilled in the one who would proceed from his line. Which is true again in verse 5, though um, David only felt like God was angry with him. That experiential feeling of God's anger was true in actual fact of Christ. The one who became the object of God's wrath. You could say whose weeping lasted through Good Friday, but joy came Easter morning. And though God hid his face from him on the cross and he was dismayed, God didn't let him stay in the pit, but he heard his prayer in verse 9. There would be no prophet in Christ staying in the grave and raised him up. And clothed him with the gladness of the resurrection. Professor Ipema in America says, um, David here in Psalm 30 anticipates Easter where the sorrow of Good Friday is overcome by the joy of Easter morning. And psalm 30 is a psalm of resurrection where God turns a funeral into a feast. He turns Good Friday into Easter morning. Where David's death and resurrection-like experience is an arrow pointing ahead to the son of David. And so even as David, when, when he was lifted up from the pit, calls God's people to give thanks and praise to God. So Christ our King says to us in verse 4, give thanks to God's holy name for how he saved me from death. For in my salvation is your salvation. Not just on Easter, but at Thanksgiving too, the center of our gratitude to God is the gospel of the resurrection. That Christ did not stay in the pit, but God raised him up. That as he said in John chapter 2, you may destroy this temple, but in three days I will raise it up. 
And John says he was speaking of the temple that is his body. John tells us that the resurrection of Jesus was the, the raising up of God's latter-day temple which is significant as we consider the fact that the inspired superscription of this psalm tells us that this psalm was written for the dedication of the temple. And so it's a psalm that that points ahead to the resurrection of Jesus, and yet at the same time that the inspired superscription tells us was written for the temple's dedication. Here's how I think we understand this. David, in Psalms 23 through 30, has has been singing over and over of God's temple or his, his tabernacle. In Psalm 23, he longs to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In Psalm 24, it's a psalm all about um, who can enter into God's holy place. In Psalm 26, he, he says that he loves the habitation of God's house, the place where his glory dwells, where he, he goes around God's altar. Remember in Psalm 27, he says that the one thing he desires and the one thing he has asked of the Lord is that he may dwell in God's house all the days of his life to gaze upon his beauty and to inquire in his temple. And then in Psalm 28, as he's, he's uh, going down to the pit, Psalm 28, verses 1 and 2, it says that he, he looks up to God's holy sanctuary, literally to, to the holy of holies, the most holy place as, as the place from which God saves. All throughout this section of the Psalter, David has been singing of God's dwelling place, his his tabernacle or temple. And Psalm 30 appears to be the climax of this section where David, who has been celebrating the dwelling place of God in the tabernacle, now writes a song to be sung at the dedication of that more permanent dwelling place of God, the temple. Remember, we know that, that David was the one who in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 longed to build that place. He says, it's not right that I'm, I'm dwelling in this, this palace while God remains in a tent. But God told him that he would not be the one to, to build that temple for him, but it would be his son. And yet we know that David still makes preparations for that temple. In uh, 2 Samuel 24, we, we see David buying the land on which that temple would be built. Or in 1 Chronicles 22, he, he gives to Solomon instructions and, and even resources, gold, with which to build the temple. And apparently, according to the superscription of this psalm, he, he even wrote a song to be sung at its dedication. From 2 Chronicles 5, we, we know that songs were sung on that occasion. It seems to be the case that David meant for this psalm to be one of those. And while it might seem a bit odd that at the dedication of the temple they would be singing of of God's deliverance of King David, think of how if God had not saved David and lifted him from death's door to God's throne, then 2 Samuel 7 wouldn't have happened. If God had not lifted David from the pit to seat him on God's throne, then 2 Samuel 7 wouldn't have happened where David purposed to build God a house. It was God's deliverance of the king of which Psalm 30 sings that made possible the the arrangements to be made for the temple. And so they're praising God for saving the king because not only in saving the king does God save the nation, but he saves them on to the joy of, of, of dwelling with God in his temple. The resurrection of the king makes possible the dwelling of God with his people in the temple. 
And now think of how appropriate this is then as a psalm that looks ahead to Christ's resurrection from the dead. Here's how one commentator put it. As a a Christian, it is hard to read this superscription without remembering that Jesus described his own body as the temple. And so when we read Psalm 30 in light of the New Testament, this song celebrates the dedication of Jesus' own body on the cross and in the resurrection. He is the temple, the place where we meet with God. And God raising him from the dead allows us to sing this song with joy. For in saving the king, he not only saves us, but allows us to dwell in his presence by grace. Psalm 30 is the song of the resurrection and song of the temple that is fulfilled in Christ's own body, being lifted from the grave as the chief cornerstone of God's end-time temple through which the son of David builds God a house as promised in 2 Samuel 7. David wrote this psalm looking ahead to the one there promised. He wrote by the spirit of Christ in him of the raising up of God's eternal temple and the person of his own son. And so as Christians, we sing this psalm praising God for how he saved his king and rejoicing in the temple that that salvation brought about, the dwelling of God with his people. As the king speaks to us in verse 4 and says, give thanks to his holy name, we do so most especially for how in the resurrection of Jesus, our sin-bearing Savior, God established his temple and made a way for sinners like us to dwell with a holy God. Of all the things for which you give God thanks, let this never be forgotten. Not only has he provided you with all that you have, Not only has he given you your your family and health and home, but he has given you his son to bear your sins on the cross, to to be buried in the grave and lifted from it that you might dwell in his presence forever. And even if you don't have health, family, or home to give God thanks for, you do have this, that he has given you his son. And because God turned his mourning into dancing and his weeping that lasted through the night into the joy of the morning, you can have that same confidence that he will do the same for you. For as it goes with the king, so it goes with the king's people. The last thing that I want to just briefly um, draw your attention to as we give thanks to God from Psalm 30 because of his king and because of his temple is this. And we also give thanks to God because of his mercy and assuring us through the resurrection of Jesus that resurrection joy and resurrection glory await us too. And the church fathers like Augustine and Jerome as they, they read this psalm as a prophecy of Christ where the, the dark hour of the passion gave way to the brightness of that resurrection morn, they, they saw this psalm also as a foretaste and guarantee of our resurrection. Augustine said we share in the suffering of Christ now is in that first part of verse five where weeping lasts through the night. But as God raised him, so he will raise us. So that joy comes in the morning. He said, we weep only until that morning of resurrection gladness 
looking to the joy that blossomed in advance in the early morning resurrection of our Lord. His resurrection is the first fruits of ours. Jerome said this psalm is about the time of Christ's passion, the, the resurrection of Christ, and the consummation of the age. Where just as it did with Christ, weeping will give way to laughter, mourning will be turned to dancing, and God will loose our sackcloth to clothe, uh, clothe us with gladness, that our glory may sing his praise and not be silent, but give him thanks, verse 12, forever. Psalm 30 looks ahead to the eternal joy of the king's people. Though we share in his suffering now, we will also share in his glory. And so even if you do have no earthly reason to give thanks, you still have every reason. As you look forward to the eternal joy that awaits God's children where your tears will be wiped away. Samuel Rutherford depicts this in a famous sermon that he preached called Christ's Napkin. He says, looking ahead to that day, then the sufferings of the saints will be wiped away and removed in the world to come. Where we will come to Christ all with, with wet faces and bleared with tears for sin and the manifold troubles of this life. But Christ will meet us at the door with a fair, soft napkin in his hand and say, hold your tongue, my dear children. You shall never weep again. He will wipe away all our tears and we will be with him and death will be no more. And all of these themes from this psalm of of death being conquered and of God dwelling with his people and of weeping being no more will be fulfilled. And Christ's resurrection guarantees it. So in the midst of your mourning that tarries for the night, give thanks already now in anticipation of that resurrection morn, where all tears will be wiped away, your suffering will give way to glory, and we will dwell with God in the temple of the new creation, worshiping him for saving his king. And lifting him from the pit, lifting us also, and turning our mourning into dancing, and clothing us with gladness. Even if you feel like you have nothing to give thanks to God for this Thanksgiving, you have everything to thank him for. For in raising his son, he has already guaranteed your eternal joy. An eternal joy that that, that even invades this present age and, and allows us, even in the midst of our weeping, to give thanks. To give thanks to God's holy name because of his king, because of his temple, And because of his mercy shown to us in the resurrection of Jesus that guarantees ours also where every tear will be wiped away and we will dwell in God's presence forever. And so come Lord Jesus. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ our King who you raised from the pit. You heard his cry and saved him. And in saving him, have saved us, his people. For this, we give you thanks for how he conquered death, for how he established your temple and comes to dwell among us by grace. One day we'll dwell in his presence where weeping will be no more. 
And so, Father, even as we share in this life the sufferings of our King, we thank you that we will share also in his glory. And we pray that if there be any here this day who, because of the sorrows of this life, have a a difficult time thanking you this Thanksgiving, that you would lift their eyes to the glory that awaits them, guaranteed by the resurrection of Christ. Help them to give thanks by faith, trusting that our weeping will give way to laughter in the morning of the resurrection, for which we give thanks even now. Through Christ our Lord.